0: Burned out here you turn your smile into a frown you're not quite ready for the clown open up open up right now open up open up right now open up open up right now Celebrate Start just soon and too late I see your hair come falling down in a world of the lost and found open up open up right now open up open up right now
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd Middle Initial C Walker. Yes, that's right. It's me. And we have been listening to the song Open Up, written and performed and recorded by Rick Landers. Rick Landers is an interesting guy. Not only is he a singer songwriter, but he also happens to publish an online magazine called Guitar International. You can find it at guitarinternational.com. And Rick is on the phone with me right now. Rick, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it.
1: Well, first of all, let's talk about that song. Oh,
2: okay.
1: Sure. And and, uh, when did you write it? What gave you the idea to write it? And when did you actually record it?
2: Yeah, I wrote that probably around three years ago. And the... um... I'll preface out a little bit. I was at a singer-songwriter camp with John McCutcheon down in um, Tennessee. And at the end of that, one of the fellows who was a really great singer-songwriter named uh, uh, Brian Cahill, he said that folks thought I sounded like Nick Drake. And I was like, I've never heard of Nick Drake. Although um, Nick passed away in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1974 uh and he actually lives in the same county i did in england at the time but i had still hadn't heard of him back then and so i started listening to his music and i was i was uh, very intrigued he's uh was a wonderful singer songwriter um and so i started playing around with um uh, some of the style that he, he plays and uh, he's got a song called pink moon which which you may have heard on a volkswagen commercial uh, which kind of reconstituted his career after about 30 years after he passed away uh, and he and he only sold three thousand albums when he was alive, so he was basically um, not very well known, not known in the states, I don't think at all at the time, as far as I know. So I um, I just started writing that song after noodling around a little bit, and uh, the words just sort of came to me, and. Um, and words come in different different ways, as I'm sure you know, as a singer-songwriter yourself. Uh, noodling around helps, and you start with the melody, and you kind of make up words, um, and eventually you keep editing them, and they, they uh, hopefully they fit together by the end uh, of your songwriting. So uh, I actually ended up sending a sound file and lyrics to a fella in Nashville named Stacy Hogan, and Stacy pulled together some top session players, including... Um, Danny Parks, who's a great mandolin player, um, and he's played with a bunch of other people, Ricky Skaggs and others. And so he pulled together the music part of that. Um, uh, and then I went to Marco Del Mar, if you know Marco, from Recording Arts in Arlington, Virginia. And he and I did the vocals for that. And we laid the vocals uh, over the top of the uh, um, most of the instrumentals. We moved, removed a couple of instrumentals. It was a little bit over the top, I think, for what I wanted to do. And we slowed it down a little bit, and or Marco did, and um, then the result was uh, open up, and I was I was pleased with the the way it came out, um, quite a bit different than the way I had written it, which was just you know me and my uh, my uh, I got a J forty five that I tend to play with, so.
1: Well, you know, I was curious about the Nick Drake reference because you have that on your website for people who are listening who want to know more about you they can either go to guitarinternational.com or ricklanders.com and on ricklanders.com they can hear gosh there's 20 or 25 sound files or lyric files on there and there's actually two versions of open up one that says in parentheses song for nick drake and then says studio and then down towards the bottom is a a live version and I would imagine live version recorded at home or or someplace local. But I was curious about the Nick Drake reference because, yeah, that Pink Moon CD is on my wife's and my dinner playlist.
2: <laughs> really, that's cool.
1: It's great background music. It really is. Not only yeah. is it wonderful to sit and listen to quietly, but it is wonderful just to have kind of off in the distance while we're having a you know glass of wine and dinner. So,
2: yeah, it can be very atmospheric. I think um, so. It's so. Yeah, I agree. I Agree. Yeah. And, and his lyrics are great, so
1: they are. And it's it's interesting too. And we'll get we'll get there. But you, the fact that you said that you were living in England about the time when he un- unfortunately met his demise, yes. The um, and that's one of the things we're going to cover. That's one of the reasons I mentioned or introduced you as an interesting guy. Um, <laughs> you seem to have done an awful lot in your, at least your musical life. But let's go and tell me how you. How old were you when you got interested in music? Was it by guitar, ukulele, piano, whatever? Take me all the way back and then kind of slowly work your way forward.
2: Sure, I can do that. Uh, I was about 14 years old when I, um, and I and I loved music since I was a young boy. I think the first song I'd, I recall was called Canadian Sunset, which was a uh, piano piece from like 1954 or something. And my mother liked that. So she had played that on a 45 uh, RPM record at the time. And then later it's Pat Boone and, you know, those type of um, balladeers. And, uh, but then around, and I'm gonna move pretty quickly through that, but around 1964, I heard the Beatles. And so the Beatles were an inspiration to everybody I knew. I was uh, living in uh, Down River, uh, Detroit area. And um, in a basement apartment, actually, uh, not real well off. Uh, I was 14 years old, and my parents uh, picked me up a Silverstone acoustic guitar, which was um, pretty horrible as far as the strings were so far off the frets. I mean, it was really hurting my fingers. So, and everybody who's done that, who've, who've had those old Harmony-type guitars, and Silverstone guitars are all be, made by the same manufacturer, I think, in Japan. Um they all had the same issue with how how tough it was to play those. So almost immediately, my my parents went out and they bought me a uh, took that back and bought me a Silvertone Bobcat, which was a, a two pickup uh, uh, black guitar. Which uh, and I've got a picture of myself when I was 14 <laughs> in my grandparents' backyard uh, in Ecorse, Michigan. Uh, from there. Um, Several of the kids uh, that I knew, we started a garage band, and we learned from each other. And uh, we were playing mostly British Invasion songs. And that band we creatively called uh, Us, U.S., not for the United States, just us, because of the who, I suppose.
1: And it was clever, uh, nonetheless. <laughs> I
2: guess. Um, and so, I mean, we were really in the music in the Detroit area, which was a, it was a great place for music back in the 60s and early 70s. Or it was a Grandy Ballroom. Uh, Cobo Hall, where we saw, I uh, actually saw the, uh, the the group that started out as, um, uh, who were they? Uh, I can't remember his name, but they ended up being Grand Funk Railroad. And so we saw them in around 1966, 67. And uh, we actually snuck into Cobo Hall. But then there was also Grand, the Grandy Ballroom. And so we'd go there and be inspired. So I saw cream there, old fudge. Uh, there and a number of other uh, blues, magus, a bunch of uh, groups at the time, and we were just into music and, and playing music. Um, from there, it kind of, you know, I, I moved from that area. I moved to another um, a location in Michigan, a place called Southgate, Michigan. And then I went to university, um, Eastern Michigan University, and then I became an exchange student and went to England. Uh, my focus was education. Um, but as I was doing that, I actually went back a second time. And I ended up working for Virgin Records uh, in Coventry uh, at a little shop, Uh, not for very long. But the manager um, invited me to go to Abbey Road Studios with him, where we saw a British folks songwriter of note. His name was Roy Harper, if you know Roy. And so we sat in in Studio Two at at, um, Abbey Road Studios. And next door was uh, Pink Floyd in Studio Three. And then during lunchtime, we all went down to the galley and a Pink Floyd were behind us and they were friends with Roy Harper. And actually, uh, Roy and uh, David Gilmer uh, worked on uh, songs together uh, for both uh, Roy and for Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin were friend, friends with uh, Roy. Anyway, so during lunch... Um, one of the guys said look at you know look at these guys behind us and they were eating um Chinese takeout and champagne so that was that was Pink Floyd. <laughs> now, I don't recall I don't recall ever talking to him but they were there and it was a small little area. It was a real galley type area. And so Roy uh, was producing his HQ album, which I think it was called in this that was a, what it what was called in England. In the States, I believe it was called When an Old Cricketer Leaves the Crease, which is also uh, the name of a song, which is a great, great song by Roy. So he's one of those legendary uh, folks who also inspired me. So after I lived in England, I I moved back to the States after my exchange program, went back to university and graduated. And I ended up getting a job with the federal government as a temporary employee. I was a wage grade two, which is, as you probably know, it's pretty much the bottom of the barrel. And I was stuffing envelopes and working in a stock room. And um, I ended up uh, borrowing money from a, a, a friend of mine. And I bought a, a Guild D25 a mahogany guitar, and I started, um, you know, playing around with my own music. And then I'd go out and I did some busking in Georgetown. Uh, I played in uh, Columbia Station. I assume that I don't know is Columbia Station still in D.C. or in Adams Morgan area. So I played at uh, Columbia Station. Uh, there was a place called uh, Mama Aisha's that I played at, which was a um, mostly a piano bar, but I pulled my guitar in there and sang a few songs there and a few other places and then i basically from there i just played for myself my dogs and cats and girlfriends and eventually my wife terry and um started writing i was writing songs at the same time but i was also doing like jackson brown songs and moran's evan songs and others that we're all familiar with um and uh then i I'd, I'd, uh, I'd go to the cellar door and a number of other places um uh, in the dc area and see people like I'll oh, see, the cellar door, I saw Dion uh, Demucci, uh, Stephen Stills, Jimmy Spiris, who uh, passed away in 85, who was just remarkable. And so for decades, I wrote songs mostly for my cats and dogs until about 2018. So there's a long expanse, expanse of time where I didn't really play anywhere, um, but I didn't open mic at uh, Herndon's Art Space. And, um, I think I played two songs and then afterwards the manager came up to me or the MC named uh, Mike Maggio and Mike uh, asked me to, to be a, um, if I'd be his first featured, uh, singer, singer, songwriter at the place. And, um, so I was honored and surprised actually. And so uh, it took about a year before I actually got back out again. And I, I played as the featured artist at uh, our space running, which was, which is fun. And, and I, still appreciate Mike's support for that. And then let's see. um, The next gig I did was, uh, again, a plate for free, but is that um, Reston has an annual event that uh, honors Robert E. Simon, who is the founder of Reston. He actually sold Carnegie Hall uh, to purchase the land his family on Carnegie Hall. So he purchased the land for Reston back around 1964, 65, and that's what uh, started uh, the whole playing community of Reston, which is now internationally known. Uh, so I was um, uh, I was accepted to play there, so I played uh, about an hour set of, of my own music. And uh, the next morning, I got an email from the manager of, or the producer of that event and asked if I'd play four performances at the Reston Town Center, um, for, uh, for Christmas, which is about eight or nine months away. And so uh, I did that and it was pretty cold. It was like 35 degrees. <laughs> up. So, I mean, my hands are like freezing. It was like... <laughs> but I, I did my best, but, and then it was windy and my... <laughs> all the things that kind of could go wrong for a new artist kind of happened at that event. But um, uh, that was fun. And, and all these things end up being lessons learned. So you're trying to improve. And so I was, I was really new. At performing um, for folks, um, but that was that was a, a good experience for me, and I'm very uh, grateful for uh, Rustin's Community Center for for hiring for me, and they they paid well, which is nice. Um, and since that time, I've been pretty ambitious, writing my own songs. Although I've written several, and they still come back to me on occasion. I'll be dorking around, and go, oh, that's an old song of mine, and they will try to find the old lyrics somewhere in a old box somewhere. And sometimes they do, sometimes I've I just have to focus on trying to remember them and then um i played at the herndon festival and there was a D trail which is a rail trail and they had a um, an anniversary 45 year anniversary where i was the entertainment director and and i was able fortunately i was able to like paying people so I, I was able to hire uh, Yasmin williams and Lindsay um, hirschfeld who's a wonderful singer songwriter um she was 17 at the time now i think she's in college um, let's see. And, uh, a few Siobhan O'Brien and a few other people. And then I played at the end. And so, uh, so I, I did that. And then mostly, mostly after that, let's see, that would have been, um, I guess I played, uh, as a showcase artist at Cafe Montmartre seven times and, uh, a number of house concerts. And I've got to, I think i gotta thank my neighbors, um, Michael Lufin and, uh, Heidi Palmer, who hired me, it was my first paid gig, uh, a house concert, and they're two doors down, and so we had about 30 people over, and I played for about an hour and a half, and, and so <laughs> Mike said, that was your first professional gig. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was very grateful for that, so I wanted to mention, mention them and that, and then I was, I've been very fortunate, um, especially in the Cafe Martin and other, other, other places, there's a fellow that you may know, Ron Goad. I know Ron him very is, well, Yes. Yeah, Ron's with the, he's on the board of the Songwriters Association of Washington, D.C., and he's become a friend during the last uh, oh, year and a half, I think maybe two years. And so he's been able to, and fortunately, uh, showcased uh, me and others um, at Cafe Mart Mart. And um, uh, he's probably the hardest working promoter of, of music in D.C. from what I can tell, along with Jay Keating, who's the president of the Songwriters Association of Washington, Kelly Diamond, who's who's wonderful, and Steve Pendlebury does a, a lot of the video work. Uh, those folks have been, um, not just for me, but for singer-songwriters and um, musicians in the D.C. area. I mean, it's they're, It's a great um, organization, and they're global. They're At the moment, they're having a... Um, a worldwide singer songwriter contest and they that uh, they asked me to be a judge and so i'm judging the um the country songs
1: oh uh, cool music, yeah and
2: judging and i just got i think i'm a final judge for the americana contemporary uh, uh group and so i've got like 10 songs that i got to go through and and look at the lyrics and look at um you know listen to the music and kind of couple those together and, and, and try to be fair because some people have money. And so they're, they're paying for like full blown productions and other people are, you know, they're using their iPhones and, and that, so you have to really dig into what the, you know, does the music stand up, up with and without a full production. And so you, you really do work hard to be fair and, uh, and, uh, make sure that the best artists actually are awarded, um, you know, and honored with awards from, um, uh, from saw, which is the Songwriters association in Washington. So that's kind of my history. And now what I do is every day I'm, I'm playing the guitar. And I just wrote a new song eight before yesterday and presented a virtual open mic for the rest and Herndon Folk club. So that's uh, and that's a great group as well. I mean, there's so many really good people out there, um, who are supportive. Um, I'm very appreciative to be in this, um, Washington, DC, Maryland, uh, Virginia arena that's that's kind of where I am at this point and I collect guitars so I've got a bunch of old vintage here and mostly play uh I've got like a 1946 Gibson next to me that I normally play in a 31 Gibson Low that is another of my favorites and uh and I've had probably over 100 guitars in the last 15 years 20 years so
1: now how many do you own now
2: well don't tell my wife <laughs> <laughs> uh I probably have about 12 right now in a dulcimer and I've got a little tiny toy piano that was made in Germany, um, back in the sixties. And I, I've actually haven't played it or tried to play it yet. Uh, I assume it works. It was like 25 bucks at a, at a antique shop up in Maryland when I went up there to, uh, buy another guitar. So,
1: so what is your, what is your, is the Gibson your favorite guitar?
2: Um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, what I like about the Gibsons that I have um, is I like spruce tops and I like mahogany backs and sides. Mm-hmm. I, I just get the right sound that I want for as a singer songwriter, though I do have a 64. I also picked up a 64 um, J 200 recently, and that's got a great song. It sound. It's not as um, uh, woody sounding as. Or organic sounding as the uh, J45 or the or the LWO. And I've got a a friend of mine. Um, he used to work for the Fender Custom Shop um, for the acoustic custom shop in and, and Hamer and Guild. And he's building me a, a LWO style, uh, Koa, guitar with some specifications that I've asked him to um, uh, customize it with, which includes some small stars for position markers and uh just a smaller neck than another guitar i had from them about two years ago so um i'd have to say my favorite guitars are probably the gibsons that are hogs mahogany mm-hmm. so they just do it for me other people like maple other people like koa other people like uh, you know walnut different types of guitars but uh the, the hogs kind of do it for me
1: yeah, guitars, acoustic guitars, in my mind are almost like restaurants, because oh, yeah. I used to do a television show on restaurants, and people would all, all the time ask me, "Where should we go to eat? Tell us where we should go to eat." So I would, I would say, "Why don't you could try this place? We just interviewed the chef there, so forth." And then I uh-huh. would see them sometimes months months later in the parking lot at the because I meet a lot of people at the supermarket. That's how, you know, walking through the parking lot. And sure, I remember either. one fellow came up and he says, hey, good to see you again. He says, hey, you know, that place you referred to, was, it was horrible. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes. well, I don't remember what I, he told me the name of the restaurant. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, it was, it's a fabulous restaurant. I said, well, what is your favorite restaurant? And he said, and it was a six ninety nine buffet restaurant. <laughs> and I had set him to a fine dining restaurant. So oh, the portions were small <laughs> and so forth. So we as guitar players are like people who go out to eat. We all have our favorites for different reasons.
2: Oh, yeah. And I, I've had so many guitars. I've had some fairly unique guitars. One was called a Gitler, which was basically it looked like a railroad track. There's actually there's one at the uh, Modern Museum Museum of art, I think it's called MoMA up in New York city on the wall. And so I had one of those and it was very, it was difficult to actually play because it was a lot because it was awkward. Uh, But I've had Hamilton guitars, something like Stevie Ray Vaughan had a bunch of strats, Takais, The Japanese guitars from the seventies were tremendous guitars. Um, At the moment, I've got a custom built Telecaster with some Joe Barden pickups. Joe worked in Vienna, Virginia, um, and I think that shop moved. And I think he actually sold Barton, sold his Barton Pickup uh, Company uh, a while back. So I've got that. And um, oh, I just picked up a nineteen. I think it's a 1959 uh, Japolina, facto Japolina by Stella. It's a Japanese guitar, very rare, um, very small company, and it wasn't very expensive. Uh, but the old Japanese guitars you're going to find, and you, if you really track guitars uh a lot of artists are starting to pick up the old japanese guitars that were like cheap guitars this one was not cheap because it was it was before the beatles so it was um it was metal, well made for the domestic market in japan but some of those uh, tiescos and and uh, harmonies and other guitars they're beginning to really ramp up in price and they're like 1500 bucks two hundred, two thousand dollars. Um and the last time I saw Jackson Brown play, he had a tsco that he's playing and um David Lindley plays a Tiesco guitar on occasion so um you know, so I've tried all different types of things at the moment I've got two electrics uh but I you know the others uh, the other ten are um they're uh acoustics some are some have pickups uh, most don't i don't think
1: so how do you go about finding these guitars
2: uh you know, I look at eBay, I look at Reverb, I look at Craigslist. Um, sometimes, um, uh, for for example, the 1964 J45. It was a single owner guitar, a beautiful guitar. Um, it had all its case candy. It had its original strap that had never been used. Its original brochure. I got a note from. I was looking at houses in Tucson area and Santa Fe area, Southwest. And one of the um, one of the real estate agents that I had been talking to with, I think can't remember who she worked for christie's i mean um she she let me know that her father who was in his 90s could no longer play his guitar and she was looking to see if i knew anybody who might be willing to uh, to buy it and so that we had conversations um uh, probably over the course of maybe eight or nine months and uh she told me that it, it had been valued at a pretty high price and so um it's like thirteen thousand five hundred dollars.
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah,
2: and, I, and but I looked at some pictures. And said, well, it's not quite mint. I mean, it's been used a little bit. You can tell it's been you know, you know, picked out a little bit. Not bad. Not bad for I mean, like a fifty-year-old guitar, or whatever it was. And so I um, I offered her um, probably probably a pretty fair price for it once I started looking because the prices go up and down. And so I offered her seven grand. And uh, but I said it would take me time to. To to sell some guitars to pay for it, so she was she was fine with that, and uh, I paid half, and she said she was going to send me the guitar when I paid half. She did, and I paid her the uh, additional 3,500 bucks, and so uh, that was a situation where just by happenstance, uh, her father uh, was at that point in a nursing home, and everybody in her family agreed that this was fine, and uh, her father wanted to, to to go to somebody who was not going to flip it. Uh, or resell it quickly and who would appreciate it and i certainly do it's a wonderful wonderful guitar
1: so that's the one so, you now play
2: no the one i play now is a 1946 uh j45 and i picked that up from a guy named neil uh Dickcheck. and he lives in i think he's in rockville and maryland and he works he's an attorney for the teamsters and so he would um And he plays guitar so he he had this guitar for sale and it'd been signed by people who had come into the teamsters to to play uh uh, events for them and so it's been signed by um uh who uh graham nash and david crosby the drive-by truckers uh bob weir uh and a few others so those are fading though but i actually did a trade for this guitar with uh neil and um Another older guitar I had from the 1960s, made by a guy named uh, what was his name Bob Givens. Bob Givens is ma- mainly known for uh, mandolins, and so, um, but he made a few acoustics, and so I had one of his. And uh, I traded; we did an equal trade, and uh, I've been very happy with this guitar. Actually, he had two brand new guitars, mint, Gibsons, a um, Roy Smeck and a Jackson Brown limited editions, and he had this 46. And I played the two new ones and they were fine, but I played this 46 and I mean, I played probably one chord on it and I was like, this is it. And so we did the, did the trade.
1: Well, what a cool way to acquire. I mean, I check eBay all the time and reverb, not quite as much. A lot of the reverb listings tend to be new as opposed to used, whereas eBay tends to be more kind of balanced, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, word of mouth. Sometimes it's, it's you know you're walking down the hall and a door's cracked open you look in and there's that guitar
2: yeah the thir- the 31 Gibson i I bought the Elder below which is a sweet little guitar uh a fellow was wanted a 1944 Gibson LG2 that i had and uh, and so and, and i was selling it I can't remember why. Probably because I was happy with the J45 as well, and I didn't need two guitars that were constructed kind of the same. Uh, the LGT was a little bit smaller than the J45, and so he came and he brought two guitars: uh a 1951 Martin and uh, the the Gibson. And I played both of those, but I played the w- once I played the uh, the Gibson l LWO, uh, and it was a cheap guitar when it's built. It was like 25 bucks brand new and 31. And it was twelve frets of the body. It was the one that people want. Um we we worked at a trade and some cash and um we both left, I hope, happy. So I played that a lot and I do a lot of writing on that particular
1: guitar. Well, as much as I like chatting about guitars and we may yep. work our way back around, I want to take sure. you back to when you were in um when you went to Abbey Road Studios. Yes. Yep. Very few people who I know, you're the first, I think, have ever mm-hmm. actually been inside Abbey Road Studios. Yeah. So I'm sure many of the people listening to this show, and myself included, are curious as to how large of a place is it? How modern is it in your, you know, that you can remember? Because the mystique of it is huge for those of us who are, you know, grew up on the Beatles. So so maybe the reality is different or maybe not. What can you say about it?
0: Well, I recall
2: it was a long time ago. That would have been 1974, I think. Um, I recall it was an older building. Um, I think we walked up some steps. Uh, I think Roy was probably there already inside when we got there, and we were with another guy. I'm not sure who he was, uh, other than the manager of the store that I worked at. And uh, once we got into this studio, I was kind of surprised how how high the ceilings were. It was a uh, it was pretty. Pretty large but not a not a not a lot of square footage I wouldn't say um, offhand I can't even guess. Um, Studio three where Pink Floyd were in um, I mean we couldn't hear them. I didn't even know they were there until we went downstairs and and they were they were eating their their uh, their lunch. Um, all I really rec- rec- recall mostly is watching Roy record over and over and over layers and layers of uh tracks on uh, one of his songs um that was uh just a, a, a fascinating just to watch him do that over and over he's just brilliant um and how he not only recorded but and but he knew what he wanted and so the studio it's basically just a room <laughs> yeah, a big room with tall ceilings and um i don't recall much beyond that but it was uh i'm, I'm glad he did it uh, so there, there were a few things that happened in England that were fun. I got picked up by um, the fellow who was the uh, lead singer of the Hollies when I was hitchhiking in in, uh, in England. And uh, he told me who he was. And I I looked at him. I went, OK, because I thought Graham Nash was the lead singer. And
1: yes. Worked. Something Clark, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Alan Clark. Yes. Alan yeah, Clark. So, yep. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't recognize him. And so he dropped me off and I I was camping down in lime Regis area, southern part of England, and later uh, looked at some photos, and there he was. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was like, "You don't believe me, do you?" I was like, "Yeah, I believe you," but I really didn't. I was trying to be nice, but um, so, but yeah, Abbey Road was uh, yeah, I didn't really see any equipment or anything per se. It was mostly just Roy playing his guitar, um, and he was mic'd and all that. So, uh, sorry, sorry, with the mystique, it's not that mysterious inside.
1: Well, no, that, that was the reason I wanted you to uh, describe it because we have this other than photos. I have a lot of books about the Beatles and many of them have photos of them in their earlier days, all the way through the White Album Um, and Abbey Road photos in the, in the studio. And I've spoken with a few people who knew someone who knew someone who worked there years ago. And when you look at the photos, it is, it's just a big open space with maybe a yep. microphone. And off on the other side, you might see a drum set, or you might see a, someone sitting in a chair. Yeah. Because the mystique of it is it's this ultra cool. I don't really know what that means. It's just the reality. That's why I wanted you to, to describe it. So you did a really, yeah. very good job of that.
2: Makes sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't recall seeing any mix mixers or anything like that. It was uh, basically a almost, almost vacant room. Uh, but I know that I've seen pictures of the Beatles there where they're, they're kind of hold, hold it close together. And there's like pianos and everything else in with them because they're really, I mean, they're a band. It's different than having a single singer songwriter up there doing his own thing. So. Yeah.
1: But, now, how did you get involved with Virgin records? Uh,
2: well, I was an exchange student, uh, at Coventry college of education through my university which is a part of Warwick University, and so a friend of mine was the manager of Virgin, the Virgin Records shop in Coventry, and he asked if I'd come and uh, work for him for a while. It was the summer, so it was only it wasn't it was like two or three weeks. It wasn't very long, and so I said I wouldn't. I did that, and then he invited me to uh, go down to Happy Roads with him and see Roy Harper, which I'd uh, I'd seen Roy a couple times in concert at Warwick University, and um, I was as a fan because he's terrific um so that's kind of how that happened it was uh you know it was pretty simple really how it happened just a friend asking a friend to work and then asking a friend to go down to happy road with him and i did so it I was think, nice it's great
1: and i think you mentioned you went back to england later
2: i did go back to england later um Actually, that was the second time I was in England. The first time I was an exchange student. Then I went back to England and I became a staff assistant for the American Studies Department, and I um, did research on uh, Black Revolutionary Studies in America and in the um, uh, historical perspectives of the Vietnam War. It was back in you know in the day, and so uh, I worked at the university or the college for uh, another year, and he uh, hitchhiked around Europe and hitchhiked from. Actually, I started in Coventry, went up to Liverpool, then took a boat over to Amsterdam and hitched to, uh, hitchhiked to um, Greece, Athens, and back. I was trying to get to Turkey, but I was unable to because there was military, military um, uh, like martial law going on because they were concerned of the Turks. Uh, there were some issues there happening with uh, Turkey.
1: So, now, were you concerned about hitchhiking? Because I'm assuming you were by yourself.
2: I was by myself. Um, I would... Sometimes stay in youth hostels, like in Austria, I did in Innsbruck. Uh, sometimes I sleep on the side of the road. I did have a guy pull a gun on me once. So, and it was like a big guy, too. I mean, I'm pretty big, but he was bigger than me. Um and so I'm looking at him. I, I asked him if I could see the gun. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> he, he gave us a funny look. And then he, he pulled a clip out and he handed it to him. He, then he showed me a picture of him with a bunch of other police officers. So <laughs> he was a police officer from Rome and he was like driving through Austria or, or maybe Italy where we were. So it was, um, it was fascinating. No, I wasn't really, uh, I couldn't say I was afraid at that point in time. Um, you know, I was 23, 24 and, um, you know, I think the only time I ran into any other real issues was a lady was yelling at me in Naples. I hitchhiked into Naples and uh, I was walking with a, a um, guy from Egypt and a guy from Germany and they were very different um, folks. Nice, but different. And some lady was yelling at us from a couple stories up and we just sort of looked at her. And we uh, looked at Naples and we thought there was not much here. And we turned around and we left. And then I slept in a Orchard, I think that night so uh, but yeah it was uh, kind of an interesting time in my life i think
1: now were you playing guitar and singing during that time
2: uh, I was playing guitar but not much I was basically playing guitars that I'd borrow borrow um, uh, and and really just be handed to me and when other people were playing and I'd play something but no I didn't actually own a guitar when I was in in England I really didn't have any money i mean I was you know I was a kind of a poor kid so
1: Now you mentioned uh, you started off with the government. How did you end up? Because you studied education, basically, right?
2: Education and communications um, were my uh, were my focus. Yeah, that's that's true.
0: Yeah. So
1: now, had you envisioned yourself ever working in some mm -hmm. capacity for the government, or it just happened that way?
0: Uh, I think I was
2: I was offered a temporary assignment, a seven hundred and fifty hour employee uh, employment position. And eventually got a that was a wage grade to two, and a uh, kick, you know, box kicker basically. And then I ended up as a GS four, as a supply clerk. And then I, um, uh, no, I didn't really, I didn't really see myself as a government employee. I, mean, I had long hair and everything, and most people thought I, I belonged on the beach, or uh, as a ski bum in Colorado, and they were kind of surprised I was with the government. Um, eventually, I, called, I got my hair, but that was several years later, and I, I ended up teaching contracting around the country for the General Services Administration um, and all the regional offices. And eventually, I mean, it took some time. Eventually, um, I got to the executive level and I was the deputy assistant inspector general of communications for the uh, Department of Defense Inspector General's Office. So I got to the like the 15 level. And uh, once I got to the top of that, um, I retired.
1: So how does a government employee start a <laughs> guitar international online magazine
2: right uh, around and 2000, why? yeah yeah uh, well I still I, I still have had my own sort of hobby avocation uh, playing music and I, and I love guitars and so and I always, and I like the idea of writing so around 2004 a, a fella asked me if I would write for his magazine online um, or at least an online site it wasn't really a magazine and uh, I said uh, I actually sent him a note asking if he wanted uh, me to write something. So he said, yeah. And so my first, I'll call it an assignment, but I paid for it. It didn't pay anything. I took the train up to New York city and I covered the Eric Clapton crossroads auction. And I was able, which and probably one of the most interesting things of, of that is I went and it was at Christie's auction house. I walked in there and, um, the person who's a coordinator for that, who coordinated my, my uh, participation, uh, pointed to the door where all the guitars were and said, they're in there. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I walked in, walked in, and she, there was no idea or anything. She just let me go. So I uh, went in there, and there's nobody there except me, and there's like 100 to 200 guitars, maybe 150 guitars, and they were like Eric Clapton's Red Cherry ES-355 Gibson, which is, uh, you know, it's legendary. It probably, and I think it was sold for over two hundred thousand dollars. There so was Eric Clapton's Blackie guitar, uh, Steve Ray Vaughn's Lenny uh, guitar, which is they're all you know, like legendary guitars for those those fellows. BB uh, King's guitar, George Harrison guitar, that uh, all had been donated to Eric uh, for his um, uh, Crossroads Rehabilitation Center. I think that's down in N- Nassau. So that was my first assignment. Um, I paid for it. It turned out great, and then I started doing interviews. Uh, my first interview was with Jimmy Bruno, who's a jazz guitarist. Then I uh, headed into DC um, sometime after that, and I interviewed uh, Lee Dixon. Lee is um, Eric's uh, Eric Clapton's guitar tech, and so that was uh, that was interesting. And then I just kept writing and writing. Eventually, started um, that would probably been that would have been before two thousand when I did that in 2004 I, I started modern guitar magazine and with the same fella although he never wanted to form a partnership so it became my magazine and uh, 2009 I changed the name to guitar international magazine and I partnered with a fellow named dr. Matt Warnock who is a great jazz um, uh, player as well as a great instructor he does a lot of online instruction and um, and I was able to interview people like Les Paul, Slash, and Slash's wife, Perla Hudson, who actually got more more uh, web traffic than anybody else. It was like 3,000 um, unique visitors a day to myself for, for months. And <laughs> it was incredible. And she was great. She was great to talk to. Roger McGuinn, I met him, and he had me tune his guitar the first thing he did. So I guess he was testing to know, see if I actually knew anything about guitars. <laughs> uh, Judy, Judy Collins, I met her at the Mayflower in D.C. with my – photographer, Mike Davis, uh, he's a great guy and a good, really solid guitar, um, not only guitar player, uh, but photographer and, um, Judy ordered, uh, room service for us and coffee and cookies. And, and so we, uh, so we took some photos of her. I interviewed her and, uh, all the, all the while we're eating cookies and having coffee and tea with, with Judy Collins. And she was wonderful. I mean, she was absolutely wonderful. And then Johnny Farina, uh, who was part of uh, Santo and Johnny, who uh, wrote and did Sleepwalk in 1959. I don't think they wrote it. In uh, 1959, they had a number one hit with Sleepwalk, which has been in more movies than any other um, uh, instrumental. And so Johnny Farine is a, a friend of mine now. And uh, he actually came to my house and stayed with me for a couple of days with his wife and did a house concert here where he played Sleepwalk and, and a bunch of other um, uh, of his uh, songs. He's got something like 40 albums of it. And I um, interviewed Buddy Guy and Steve I Eric Johnson. I sold an amplifier to, to Eric Johnson, an old Stan Del from 64. Um, so it's been kind of a, an interesting ride with this magazine uh, and basically doing what you do. You know, only, uh, only it ends up in a magazine rather than a podcast website. Uh, coming up at Guitar International is um, we should have uh, Kenny Wayne Shepard soon. He's a blues uh, master. And I've got a number of others uh, I hope to have soon. One will be with Jay Keating. I, uh, I mentioned him before. He's the president of the Song Writers Association of Washington, and a um, uh, num- number of other folks. Uh, um, if you don't mind if I go on a little bit more about this site, I'll t- kind of tell you my approach to interviews.
1: No, please, that- d- please do.
2: OK, so in, in, in the interviews, there's one thing is, is I've always focused on is having core values and you know being honest having as much integrity as possible and, and sometimes i make mistakes like anybody else but most of the time i think we've you know, all the people that i've I've worked with on this and i have a lot of volunteers and i used to pay people when i was t- making some money on it is to make sure that we have a credible professional online magazine we, i think we're we were probably the first professional online magazine for guitars uh, that were that was only online uh, there were others that were starting like a uh, guitar player and uh, there was one called Guitar Edge that lasted, I think that lasted a year, and that went off, went away. There was one called Pure Guitar, which uh, was headed up by a fellow who was the editor for Guitar Player, and that lasted maybe six months. But we've, we or I have sustained this over the course of uh, about fifteen years. So when it comes to interviewing and holding those, those core values, I, I don't ask any gotcha questions. I'm not trying to have a, a site that's. That's trying to just focus on getting traffic, especially traffic based on something that's kind of insidious, that's not fair to somebody. So I want to maintain that integrity of of the questions and the relationship Uh, and respect people, Uh, not only my readers, but but also those people I'm interviewing. So um, um, so there's there's no gotcha questions. There's no desert island questions. So I'm not asking people what, you know, what albums they'd like to have if they were on a desert island, which has been which I'm sure you know, has been overdone for decades. And so you kind of steer away from those as an interviewer. Um, and then I do a lot of research before I talk to anyone when time allows. Sometimes I get maybe a day, not even that sometimes, uh, notice that somebody, you know, maybe Steve guy has, has like an opening like the next day. Like, uh, okay, I need to do a lot of reading and focus on asking him questions that I, so I can come at him from different angles. I don't want to ask them questions that are predictable. I want I want to ask people questions where they actually have to think and not just respond, because normally when you're doing this type of thing that I'm doing, you might be one of maybe five or ten other interviewers. So you want to you want to kind of rise above um, asking questions that they've been asked before. And you may ask the same question, but in a different way that 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 uh, breathes more thoughtful. Uh, and more interesting questions and responses for them to, to tend to. Uh, so you want to have it be fun for them uh, as well, and that's kind of how I've approached everything. At the at the moment, I'm working with an intern who who will be the um, graduate intern from Illinois, and his name is Cody Sykes. Cody's now in the vineyard. He's he's doing farm work, I think, at the moment. So he's not 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 online as much as I'd like him to. Uh, but he's going to be interviewing Kenny Wayne Shepherd soon. And so, um, you know, he's got to I'm going to be working with him with the questions to make sure that the questions because he's fairly new to this. although he's really smart. Um, I'm going to make sure that he's got the questions that will actually elicit some uh, some thoughtful responses. Not that Kenny Wayne Shepherd isn't thoughtful. He is. He's a smart guy and he's a really nice guy. Um, so, you know, the approach is, you know, you're just trying to be like on a friendly relationship with these folks and really promote what they want to promote at the time because they all want to promote either an album or something. Um, and and so you, you, you want to do that at the same time. So Sure. Um, so some of the more interesting things, I don't know how much time we have, some of the more interesting things that have, that have happened or funny things maybe is I interviewed Randy Bachman. I was with a guy named, um, you may know him, Michael G. Stewart, photographer.
1: The name does not ring a bell to me.
2: Okay, for he's from uh, Maryland. So he and I went and we interviewed Randy Bachman at the Birchmere, which is a great venue here in D.C. And Randy was eating dinner. He was eating, a, he was eating a barbecue sandwich. So I shook his hand and then, and it had barbecue sauce on it. <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to watch that hand.
1: Yeah, really.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so that was that was kind of a little story. So he was great. He was fun to talk to you. Roger McGuinn, when I met him, uh, he had just gotten his, uh, Martin signature seven string, uh, acoustic guitar. And he, he sort of handed it to me. He says, tune this. So I I figured that was a test because a lot of people who write for magazines, um, guitar magazines don't actually play guitar. And so I tuned it, but I didn't know what the seventh string was. And he told me what the, what the note was for that. So I tuned it to that and handed it back to him and that seemed to uh, satisfying. And then, uh, like I said, Judy Collins, uh, ordered room service for Mike Davis and, and myself um, had a few beers with John Jorgensen with Michael Stewart as well uh, who's a fine DC photographer um, and so the site has been uh, online since 2005 it's free uh, I think I've got about 2600 pages of content some of it quite a bit of it, actually maybe 600 pages are hidden Uh, Because I'm going through the old stuff to make sure the formatting still looks good. And sometimes things drop out, like YouTube videos will drop out. So I need to go to each one. Um, And so that's time consuming. And so I've been working on that for like five years. It's hard to get to um, because I'm also trying to keep the site fresh. Um, Some of my favorite interviews, um, I mean, they're all kind of fun. Uh, Jose Feliciano was a blast.
1: Yeah, I read Uh, that one. That was a great one. He's one of my favorite performers.
2: Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb was absolutely wonderful. Uh, And his wife uh, was there. And uh, I met them at um, the winery in DC. And then Les Paul, I met him a couple of times. And he was a smart guy, funny guy. uh, When I was, uh, I think the first time I was up in New York to meet with him at the Iridium, where he still played when he's in his 90s uh, every Tuesday night. Um, I I was sitting during soundcheck with with Michael G Stewart again, and um, Les came up to us. He said, "Who are you guys?" <laughs> so he sat down and he talked to us for like forty five minutes. And I, I I should have had my recorder on, but I just I mean he was just he was hilarious. He was like quick witted, and he passed away when he was one hundred and one years old. Um, uh, yeah, what his shame But he was a brilliant, brilliant guitar player, and and then Judy Collins was fun, but but really. They're all really nice. There there have not been less than a handful where I was like, eh, I'm not sure I like that person. But I would say like 99.99%, uh, everybody, everybody has been great and uh, and pretty interesting, you know, pretty interesting folks. Uh, one guy, Martin Barr from um, Jethro Tull, you know, he's a runner and he's really, you know, he's in good shape. And so he was fun. Arlo Guthrie was fun. Uh, just a bunch of them are, are just very nice people, very gracious, and I'm, I'm very uh, honored and appreciative that I could not only meet them, that they were willing to talk to me for, you know, an hour or so. So, you know, but well, you, I mean, you've been doing the same thing for a number of years, so.
1: Well, they must be. Yeah, it must, for them, when I say them, the who we would call the famous people, the guitar players, yeah. the singers, whoever, yeah. I would imagine at times it's like, oh, gosh, I have to do another interview because I'm sure they're just inundated with people wanting to speak with them. And the fact that you're able to get them on a level that is different, you know, more of a personal guitars. level, I guess would be from, I'm reading between the lines of what you said, that, that that's how you try to approach it. So you're not just the canned interviewer.
2: Yeah. And I, and I know guitars pretty well. So I, when I'm talking to some of these folks who are like really great guitar players, like they Wachtel and who was, who who co-wrote, world's of london or uh some others uh, i know guitars so and i i talked to e, no what's his name aj croce jim Croce's yeah. first and and so we were talking about hey he said I, i'm looking for one of these if you see one so it ends up being a conversation more than an interview and you, sometimes you go on you know um uh, a little bit on tangents so it's um so you got to steer back to try to get to the you know what their focus um should be even though they're having fun yeah both what you're basically doing is you're both working i mean they're they're working i'm working um but uh, so that's all fun i also try to focus on people who aren't well known that i think are really um good and nice people i mean i've interviewed yasmin williams who's a, a wonderful guitar player from dc jillian matundin She's uh, she's an award-winning um, performer from the DC area. I mentioned Lindsay Hirschfeld. She just won a, some award from the Grammys, um, not a Grammy award, but some type of contest. And she, I met her when she was 16 and she's now 18, maybe 19 in college. And she's remarkable. Um, but there are so many, um, there's a guy named Dave Seeley I've, I've been dealing with for the last year. He does Hawaiian slack key guitar and um, very, very meticulous guy. And, and I don't know anything about Hawaiian music, but it's, it's fun to listen to him and his wife does Hula. So it's a, it's a pretty cool situation. Um, And he's become a friend. And then, like I said before, Ron Goad and Rod, you know, Ron's just a blessing for this whole area. So uh, very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. So.
1: Well, for the folks listening, and please, those of you who are listening, go to the both websites, ricklanders.com and and guitarinternational.com. But on that Guitars national site i'm going to just read a few of the people and i apologize if i mention someone you've already mentioned but just to give people an idea and these are interviews most of them you can probably still find on the website and read but uh from martin guitars you have chris martin the fourth and dick Boak, who right uh, or boak i can't i don't know how you pronounce it and he's uh now retired but he was you know, very instrumental in Martin for many, many years. We've mentioned Jose Feliciano, Dave Mason, buddy guy, Eric Johnson, who I think you mentioned purchased an amp from you. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. Yep.
1: Now that's pretty cool. How did you, how did he find out about you owning the amp or was it just in discussion?
2: We, it was during the the conversation, uh, we had a phone interview and then he was coming around to the Birchmere, And so I was, I was going to get some photos of him. And, uh, you know, he and I talked, you know, during the, I think it was during the sound check and, and, uh, and maybe it was after the show and he wanted to see the amp. So I, so I brought this, it was a 64 Standel 15 inch speaker. And he, he had mentioned Standels, So I brought that um, to the show, uh, hauled it in after his show. And he pulled out one of his guitars and started dorking around with it. And he was like, he was hemming and on a little bit. And then his, then his bus driver, coach driver, he said, if you don't buy it, I'm going to buy it for you because he knew that he, he knew that Eric liked it, and so the guy like pulled out a water, like it was 300 bucks, and it wasn't. For, I, I gave him a deal on, it. and so um, Eric got it. And Eric's like looking around. She said, "What can I give you?" <laughs> it's like I said, you got a guitar strap. So he handed me. I hope I'm not talking out of school here, but he said, "I got a guitar strap. I got some Buddy Guy," <laughs> and I said, "I said that'll do." Yeah. <laughs> so he he pulled out this polka dot um, uh, guitar strap, and then he signed it. Something to Rick Eric Johnson, and then he gave me a T-shirt that he had designed for his Bloom album, and um, he was wonderful. He was he was a really really nice uh, gentleman. So um, I'm not sure where I was headed with that.
1: <laughs> well, no, this, I just I was reading off the list of some of the people, the yeah, yeah. Um, um, Waddy Watchell, Russ Kunkel, yeah. D- Danny right. Korchmar, and Leland Sklar, who all the three of those for many many years, and probably still back. James Taylor, of course. Yes. In yes, the uh yeah. and and a, a whole lot of other people some people people may recognize some may not but what a fun you know it's an occupation but a a hobby too isn't it
2: yeah yeah it's actually becomes kind of a career uh, mostly a, a, I guess a hobby at this point I'm not really trying to generate any any revenue um, but uh, yeah and all those guys as you just mentioned uh wadi and and uh, and uh, and uh, the others. Uh, they're all with a group now called The Immediate Family. They mm-hmm. formed their own group. There's another fellow named Steve Postel. Steve used to be with the Pure Prairie League. So the next interview that I'll have out will uh, should be Steve's. And uh, I, think I'll, I think I'll get everything I need for that. I just need to cobble it together. And uh, let me point out on my own Rick Landers site, for those who go through it, a lot of, this, a lot of the titles for the songs there, they don't match up to the actual uh, sound files. And that's because I'm trying to develop this and I'm not able to put in the text unless I got a sound file there. So I'm putting in what I can, but I'm working on the sound file so that all the, all the song titles will, will line up with the, um, and I'm going to put tabs in there as well, guitar tabs, uh, the lyrics and the sound file. So just bear with me. And, and, um, you know, if you like my music um, just uh, stand by, I'm, I'm working on that and uh, I've got other things going I'm writing a children's book series as well. So I'm, I'm I'm fairly busy in my retirement.
1: It it sounds like you are now regarding your songs. The, I know open up is, is a studio production. And I think there was another one in there. One or two others Uh, that were studio studio productions. The, um, if I'd given my heart, I think was to you, was one of them, but the, do you have a, any plans for releasing like an EP or anything like that in the future?
2: Uh, yes, I do. But at the moment I'm, I'm, I'm buying guitars, so, you know, the money, <laughs> the money is, you know, it is pretty expensive. To put, uh, put it up is. Up and, and so I've got those two songs, which are studio productions. One was, the, the first one I did was a fellow named Mike Lusk, who did the vocals and um, out of Nashville. And the reason I did that is I want, and that was my first studio song that I had written. And I wanted to hear optimally what it would hear, like what it would um, sound like if I had, Professionals doing it rather than me doing anything, and so I got it back, and it it was pretty daunting hearing that song in its full production because it was like a blast of music coming at me because I'm used to you know playing it on my six string and by myself. Um, so it took a little while for me to, to recognize that the song actually belonged to itself at that point. It didn't belong to me anymore. It was its, it was his own entity. Um, but so. very
1: but very cool in in a way. It must be to hear your song being performed by other people
2: yeah 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 actually when i took the uh singer songwriter course with john mccutcheon uh i had suggested that the he wanted suggestions on how to improve his course his seminar and he's excellent i said it would be good if if people would play other people's songs so we can actually hear what this sounds like other than from ourselves and he's like that's a good idea i don't know if he's done that because i haven't been back to his uh another session but yeah it is different hearing it from um you kind of get a different perspective which i think is helpful i mean it's helpful to play your own songs on on your iphone and hear yourself but it's not like hearing somebody else um do it so uh yeah that's that's uh that's i think it gives you a perspective that's that's very helpful but to answer your question yeah my plan is to do them all uh but it's um it's uh you know I'm, I'm, i've got another guitar coming in that i'm, I'm gonna pay another some money for and so that money was going to be for studios, studio production. But um, this, this guy, I know, agreed to give me a great deal on his Koa guitar. Um, and so um, in time, but I will have uh, at least the iPhone recordings and people and the tabs. So if people want to listen to them and if they want to play along or uh, play on their own, they'll have uh, some guitar tabs, which uh, I think everybody should do. But I know Cat Stevens does that. I do i Cat Stevens. Uh, But I think that's a a nice thing to do uh, to offer free tabs for for folks for your music. So
1: now now for the people listening and we're going to be closing shortly and you won't hear it because you and I will have finished the conversation on the phone, but they're going to hear your song, big Cadillac. Now was was that recorded on your iPhone? Yes. Okay. So most of those songs are just recorded on your iPhone with the iPhone mic, or do you have a separate microphone?
2: Um, those, I don't even think I used a mic for most of those songs. I've got really good acoustics in my living room.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I have, I've had uh, Blue Melody house concerts. Which is something that I've hosted for the last four years. And uh, most of the artists who, who come in, uh, they're like amazed at the acoustics in, in the room. So uh, it's got a high ceiling and it's got hardwood floors. And it's just, it's remarkable. Uh, so uh, I haven't used an amp or anything. That's just That's just me playing with my guitar.
1: Well, and the well, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun for those listen. but remind everybody what your two website addresses are.
2: Yes. Uh, my Guitar International magazine is uh, pretty simple. It's um, www.guitarinternational.com, and it's free and several thousand pages of uh, news um, uh, there's some instruction, but mostly interviews with, uh, some, uh, legends and some people who I think are, uh, laudable, uh, great musicians in their own right. And some local folks, uh Jeff Smith, if you know, Jeff Smith plays mm-hmm. in this area. And so he's interviewed, uh, hopefully we'll get Gene Bayou and a few other folks and, uh, and maybe interview you if you're game. At some point. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. I've seen your, your website and your background. I think that'd be terrific. And so, and then the other one is my um, Rick Landers website, which is uh, again, www.ricklanders.com. And um, so you can hear the songs for free. Uh, There are some download, you know, 99 cents or something for the songs. But if you want to hear the song, you can play the full song um, for the songs that are there. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is great.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Rick. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. You Me and too. your wife, and I think you have some dogs, don't you?
2: I do. I had one pass away who was like 20, 20 years old, and I've got a 23-year-old cat. Uh, but wow. I, do have I do have a boxer who's uh, 11 years—I'm um, sorry, he's six years old. And then I've got the 23-year-old cat, and I've got another cat that's like 12. They're, and they're all rescues. Um, so, uh, yeah.
1: Well, you must have made a great home for them, you and your wife, to have that, that much age on them. So kudos to you.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Todd. And I really appreciate you, uh, you spending the time with me today.
1: Oh, it's been fun. So, right, uh, thanks again. And, um, uh, for those folks listening and for Rick, the show will actually air formally tomorrow, tomorrow being December the 4th. It's being recorded the day before, but again, Rick, thanks so much. Enjoy the holiday. And, uh, you I too. hope we get a chance to, I, I saw you in person one time down at beans in the Belfry, I think. Ah, Okay. And I knew you were going to be there, but I didn't know at that point in time what you looked like. I had gone down to meet a friend of mine who was working on a campaign for someone and I was going down to give her a check. Ah, I I don't know if you performed before I got there or after I left, but I'm sorry I missed you and was not able to to actually meet you in person. One day we will once this whole virus thing kind of goes away. Great. I think
2: we talked about uh, me before COVID hit uh, me playing up in Frederick at uh, the coffee place. So that that awesome.
1: is correct. And I hope that Sunday songwriters comes back at some point in time. So
2: me, me too. Me too. So thank you very much. I appreciate your support and uh, you doing this and Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everybody.
1: Thanks, Rick. Talk to you soon. I hope. Bye bye. Right, okay.
2: Thanks. Todd.
1: Well, that was Rick Landers. Um, interesting guy tough to get a worded edgewise in a good way. I just wanted him to talk because he has so many interesting stories to tell. Um, People he's interviewed, places he's been, just fascinating. So I hope you're enjoying the show. And we're going to finish up the show listening to one of his songs recorded on his iPhone. I mentioned it briefly. It's called Big Cadillac.
0: says he can make me a deal.
1: The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. wispymopmusic.podbean.com, And Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. So wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you may find it on either iTunes. Or Apple Podcast. Now back to Big Cadillac.